Hi everyone, welcome to your San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. Migrant children will soon be sheltered at the San Diego Convention Center. Immigration reporter Kate Morrissey will share with us what she knows. Then columnist Chris Reed will talk about mistrust of the media and what the future of journalism might look like. First, the news. Governor Gavin Newsom on Wednesday appointed Democratic Assemblyman Rob Bonta as California Attorney General. Bonta is a leading advocate for criminal justice reform who has campaigned to abolish the death penalty and eliminate cash bail for many offenses. If confirmed by the state legislature, Bonta, a resident of Alameda, will be the first Filipino-American to serve as California AG. He set the same milestone for the state assembly when he was elected in 2012, representing a Bay Area district. Newsom's appointment fills a vacancy left by Javier Becerra's departure to become the U.S. Health and Human Services Secretary in the Biden administration. Sweetwater Union High School District plans to give its teachers bonuses to get them to return to campus after more than a year. The school board on Monday approved a one-time 7% increase in the April pay of teachers who returned to campus on April 12th. They also approved a 2% bonus for the months of May and June for teachers who returned to campus on May 3rd. The bonuses are contingent on the district qualifying for state reopening incentive money, and Sweetwater is not the only district to offer incentives. San Ysidro Elementary is offering a $1,400 stipend to teachers who provide intensive in-person help one day a week to at-risk students. It's also offering a stipend of up to $4,950 for teachers who simultaneously teach online and in-person classes for two days a week starting April 12th. San Diego Gas and Electric customers who use natural gas will get a break on their bills next month. The state's annual climate credit will cut $17.87 from the April billing cycle of residential and small business gas customers. The climate credit program goes to utility customers across California and is funded by money raised by the state's cap-and-trade program. The credit is applied to natural gas customers once a year. A larger credit is given to electricity customers twice per year. Migrant children who cross the border alone will soon be sheltered at the San Diego Convention Center. The plan came together quickly and many details are still unknown, including how many children are coming and when they will arrive. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services is opening temporary shelters to address a backlog of children in the custody of Border Patrol. Legally, Customs and Border Protection must transfer unaccompanied minors to the Office of Refugee Resettlement within 72 hours, but that hasn't been happening for weeks. Kate Morrissey is the UT's immigration reporter. She covered the story with Gary Worth. Kate, why are we seeing an influx of unaccompanied minors at the border now? That's a really good question, and I think it's a lot more complex and nuanced than um, most of the answers that are that are being given quickly um, to folks. I think that there's there's a couple of things going on. One is that you have um, people, including children, who have been waiting in Mexico for a long time to be able to request protection in the United States. And they have started to to cross the border in the United States to to request that protection. There was um, for much of last year, the Trump administration was actually including children 
in this um, pandemic order that uh, basically allows border officials to expel anybody um, that they catch crossing into the United States back to the country that they're coming in from or back to their country of origin. And so for months, even children who were trying to cross alone were being expelled. Um, and that, I think, has led to an increased number who are in Mexico and sort of ready to present themselves and try. Um, and then on top of that, you have situations in in countries that have, you know, in recent history uh, had sort of large numbers of, of children fleeing them. Um, you have deteriorating conditions in those countries. So when you're looking at, you know, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, some of the other countries um, a little further south as well, the the economic conditions that were already happening there that were sort of partnered with corruption and and violence to make the living situations very difficult, especially for young people, um, are now you know, exacerbated by the pandemic, as well as exacerbated by the destruction of two hurricanes that that hit the region within a couple of weeks of each other towards the end of last year. And so, you know, you have new arrivals getting added to this group of people who had already been sort of backlogged at the border. Um, and then, you know, on on top of that, now we are we are accepting unaccompanied children. And so there are reports that some families who arrive at the border are making the very difficult decision to send the kids on by themselves because they want the kids to be safe and they don't feel like they're safe in Mexico. Wow. So all of that is coming together to, to cause there to be um, a larger number of children apprehended by border patrol. And I do think it's important to note too, that this is also the time of year when we typically see numbers sort of increasing in peak. Um, even if you look back at 2019, which was, you know, before the the pandemic kind of made everything weird and, and different from the, the typical sort of patterns that we see. But if you look back at 2019, we were having um, similar numbers, numbers of people crossing the border and, and had a peak um, in May of that year that's a little bit higher than where we're at now in terms of overall crossing. So, you know, I think when you look historically, like this isn't a big new thing, but it, it is something that that is is needing to be addressed. So when we say children, what ages are we talking about? Are we talking about young children, mostly teens? What do you know about the kids themselves? Um, historically, when we talk about children who are crossing the border by themselves, a lot of them are teenagers. Um, and there are also children who are much younger. Um, so, you know, in, in conversations with Border Patrol, I've, I've heard stories about young children um, coming across the border alone and, and being being found by a border patrol agent. Um, and there are also a lot of teenagers. So I think I think it's a mix. I, I don't have great data on the exact breakdown currently. Um, I know that some of the emergency shelters that open uh, or that have opened recently are, are catering to sort of teenage boys as a demographic. So I do think that that is one of the larger um, groups that they're probably having in custody right now. What will happen to the children once they arrive at the convention center? Once they're at the convention center, um, they are no longer in um, the custody of Customs and Border Protection, which is sort of, you know, if you go through the port of entry and you're you're talking to an official there, that's that's who they're with. That's also who Border Patrol agents are with. 
Um, so they're, they're now in the custody of the Department of Health and Human Services. And so um, folks either staffed by that department or contracted through that department will be um, taking care of the children, um, providing them a place to sleep and, and food and, and all of those basic necessities, and then also working to identify and reunite, identify who that child knows in the United States. Um, the statistic that we've been given from the federal government is approximately 90% of children actually have uh, a family member already in the United States who's, you know, ready to, to take them once they can, can get all the logistics sorted out of finding that person and, and making sure that they're, they're um, safe for the child to, to go to. Um, and so they'll do all the work of, of, of getting that reunification set up and then and then the child um will will hopefully end up with their their family or or other loved one or sponsor um taking care of them the children who who don't have somebody here um will eventually be transferred to more um long-term sort of permanent sites that are run by the department of health and human services as opposed to um a con the convention center which is seen more as like a temporary um sort of influx facility as opposed to like something that's meant to hold children for a really long time. It seems like this plan came together kind of quickly. Could you walk us through how exactly it came together? And also the yeah. fact that the convention center has been used recently um, as a shelter for the homeless, did that um, influence, you know, officials decision to make it into a place to house migrant children? It just so happened that as the, um, the homeless shelter situation was was already scheduled to wind down. Um, San Diego officials got a phone call from uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, which, as you may know, is is now being run by a Californian who they worked with for a long time when he was the Attorney General. And so they were they were talking with the department um, over the weekend, and um, you know, sort of quickly quickly got you know, officials together here locally to say, is this something we can do? Is this something we want to do? And um, what we've been told from, you know, Nathan Fletcher and, and Todd Gloria is that everyone was was pretty much on board, like, yes, this is something we want to help with. Let's, let's make it happen. Um, and so it has, it has moved very quickly. The announcement of it came much more quickly than the um, solidified plans of who exactly would be in charge of what thing and how it would happen. So we still don't know you know, who's contracting to provide some of the different services. Um, and I think, you know, many of the, the organizations that work with asylum seekers or, or unaccompanied children or, or any of the sort of the, the groups that, that might be um, affected by this, like they, um, they didn't know much before the public did that this was happening either. So I think this is coming together very quickly. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned local Democratic leaders like Todd Gloria, like Nathan Fletcher are behind this, but you also had in your story that some San Diego Republicans have raised concerns about the price tag and maybe the policy itself. Um, you talked to Congressman Daryl Issa, also County Supervisor Joel Anderson. What did they have to say? Uh, and are those arguments resonating with the public? So what we're hearing from from them and from Republicans in general is sort of this this blame of the fact that there are so many children in custody being placed on the Biden administration. Um, but we saw very similar um, situations happening under the Trump administration. And even after, you know, policies that led to family separation, even after 
the remain in Mexico policy uh, was put in place, these policies that were sort of meant to be extreme deterrence of migration, we still saw um, very similar peaks and crossings. And so, um, you know, there's there's definitely a, a politicized component to the conversation that's happening now. Um, and, you know, so there's there's sort of always that component when you're talking about immigration these days, I guess. But when you're when you're looking on the ground, you know, this is um, the way that the the Biden administration is is choosing to handle it is is to create these these additional spaces. And what we're what we're being told, at least, you know, from this point, is that the federal government, the Department of Health and Human Services, is covering the cost of taking care of the children. It's not something that the city and county are are taking on sort of resource-wise on, you know, beyond providing the space. So this shelter is temporary at the convention center, as you mentioned, but are there plans to house migrant children in San Diego more permanently? Well, we already have a couple of um, facilities from the Department of Health and Human Services. They're fairly small um, and they are sort of in in East County. Um, We actually visited them or visited one of them back in 2018. Um, we did a story after after doing a, a tour of one of those facilities, um, and so and those have been around for a long time. They're run by a group called Southwest Key, um, and so I have not heard I have not heard of any plans to create um, more of those here. I think it's it's important to note that not that many of the crossings or apprehensions of unaccompanied children are happening along the California border. The the numbers I crunched from February showed roughly 5% of the children who are going into border patrol custody are being caught in California. It's it's much more um, something that's happening in Texas and and also somewhat Arizona. And so um, I think a lot of the focus is on, on putting up facilities that are closer to where these children are being are being um, caught by border patrol. And so um, that's, you know, San Diego, in, even in, in having the convention center is sort of an outlier from, from most of the facilities that we've seen announced, even in terms of, of temporary space. Now let's turn to opinion. Chris Reed is the deputy opinion editor and a columnist at the UT. Today he wrote about mistrust of the media and why he thinks that's sometimes warranted. Okay, Chris, in your column this week, you wrote that the the media is having a Humpty Dumpty moment. Can you explain what you mean by that? It's broken and it's not going to come back again. Uh, we're, we used to have the era of era of broadcasting where you have a few networks and a few main newspaper outlets. Now we're in an era that increasingly resembles narrow casting where people get their news from far more sources than they ever did. And it's commonly understood that the Republican party has pretty much given up on uh, main media, what they call mainstream media because of their perception, basically dating back to the Bush years that they weren't getting a fair shake. But the phenomenon that we're now seeing is that Democrats are increasingly uh, skeptical about the media, even though some people believe the media generally helps Democrats. So it's a it's a it's a cratering phenomenon in terms of, uh, of media support. It's 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 the old days. We used to see uh, broad support in one party and medium support in the other. Now we're seeing declining support in one party and non non-exist, non-existent support basically in the other party. 
Well, you basically said you understand this and you pointed to a couple stories that are fueling this fire. Would you share those with me? Well, on the Republican side, uh, they they're remain furious over many things. Uh, the number one is that there really is no hard evidence linking uh, Putin to Trump in a conspiracy. And the idea that Trump and his administration could keep a secret is truly laughable. There's also the fact that after the 2012 terrorist attacks in Benghazi, which were acknowledged the next day in an email by Hillary Clinton to be terrorist attacks, for two weeks, uh, President Obama pretended that they were uh, uh, spontaneous attacks, even though they had you know, rocket launchers. Yes, you go to a protest with a rocket launcher. Meanwhile, three weeks later, uh, uh, Mitt Romney made his infamous binders full of women mark remark, awful, screeching, horrible remark, but not nearly as bad as, you know, lying about an act of war during a presidential election. So those things really uh, infuriated Republicans. And the weird thing is on the Democratic side is there's long been a Democratic critique of the mass media, that it supports neoliberalism and it supports wars and it doesn't care about the fact that so many people are poor. But now there's a new development where people on the left don't want the media to be straight shooters. They essentially want the media to come right out and support causes and not just on the editorial page. And we have this interesting flap over Substack, which is a, a, a fairly new platform that allows journalists uh, to make money by selling newsletters through this independent company. And some very famous uh, liberal journalists who don't stick with liberals on every single thing, people named Matt Iglesias and Glenn Greenwald, have gone against the progressive orthodoxy in a few ways. And so now what are uh, their old colleagues doing? They're going after Substack as not having, you know, uh, as being akin to Breitbart, which is a pretty amazing call. Yeah, you cited a September 2020 Gallup poll that said 10% of Republicans trust the news, 27% of Democrats trust the news, and 36% of independents trust the news, uh, clearly the largest group. I mean, do you think that's because they don't subscribe subscribe to, uh, you know, a political ideology as strongly, and so they're not as offended by the news? Or how do you explain that? Well, uh, I think that uh, there's a perception that, uh, you know, even even some Democrats you'll talk to, like certain people we work with that I know very well, have, have said, you know, we, we see the tilt. And in 2004, the New York Times' own ombudsman said, of course, the New York Times is a, a liberal paper. So there's, you know, there's some candor on this issue, and there's also those who insist that this is just all a bunch of bull, that there really isn't much media favoritism, that if the media favors anything, it's sensationalism, as opposed to sticking to one side or the other. That may be true for local news. If it bleeds, it leads. But I don't know if that's fair at all for the national media. Are there outlets out there that you think are truly neutral or do a pretty good job? I like the Wall Street Journal's news pages, uh, by and large. There's uh, dozens of reporters at, at uh, CNN that I, I, I like. I still have uh, you know some respect for Jake Tapper, though his thin-skinned blasts on tweet, Twitter don't suggest that he takes criticism well. But I think Jake Tapper is a pretty good job. I think Wolf Blitzer does an excellent job on, on, uh, on foreign affairs, especially. And I'll actually uh, stick up for uh, a Fox personality or two, not the bloviators who talk at night, but some of the hosts, Chris Wallace, for example. So what do you think is the way forward? I mean, we as journalists in a, in a mainstream media company kind of rely, depend on people to continue to read our news. Uh, how, how can we have jobs years into the future? Well, four years ago, I wrote a column that called for there to be the 75 website and the 25 website. The 75 website would monitor views on the right, but would you know be sympathetic to them, but would 
view claims that were made and try to judge whether or not they were true. So it'd be like ideological self-policing. And the 25 website would be sympathetic to democratic causes, but would be rigorously factual when checking claims made on behalf of those democratic. And it just seems to me like this is the future. Somebody's going to do this at some point because there is an appetite for clearly partisan journal journalism that doesn't have the baggage of, you know, being uh, maliciously wrong or misrepresenting things. So I don't know if that has a, a mass appeal to anybody, but I do think that there's a, a fair amount of people, me included, who would welcome openly partisan magazines and websites so long as they didn't spread misinformation. And so the idea of self-policing is, is one to me that has promise. Okay, Chris Reed, Deputy Opinion Editor at the UT and columnist, thanks so much. Thanks. You can find these stories online at SanDiegoUnionTribune.com. And if you have feedback about News Fix or suggestions for me, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at Christy.Totten at SDUnionTribune.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-Y dot T-O-T-T-E-N at SDUnionTribune.com. Thanks for listening.